instead of thinking about microplastics as, as sort of these discrete categories of different shapes, sizes, and, and, and polymers, I like to think of them more as a continuous distribution. And in that way, we, we consider what's really going on physiologically with these particles and what makes us concerned about their impacts. And when it comes to human health, we have pretty good evidence that the surface area of the particles is really what's most concerning. That is a good predictor for whether or not it's causing inflammation or oxidative stress. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. So this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Scott Coffin, PhD. He's a research scientist, part of the California State Water Resource Plastics Monitoring in Drinking Water. And uh, Scott, thank you for coming. Happy to be here. Tell me a bit about your background, if you would. And then I want to ask you about your work with the uh, state of California. Sure. So I am a trained ecotoxicologist, and I've been studying microplastic pollution and their effects on aquatic organisms and humans since 2014. I did my PhD at an, an environmental toxicology from the University of California at Riverside. And now I work for the California State Water Resources Control Board. This is part of the California Environmental Protection Agency and is the main agency that regulates water in the state of California. California currently has a mandate to develop regulations for microplastics in drinking water, as well as implement monitoring and policy for microplastics in the marine environment. Okay. I guess, is California the first state to do this? Are any other states looking at uh, regulating microplastics in, in drinking water or other sources? To my knowledge, California is not only the first state to mandate the development of regulations for microplastics and drinking water, but it's also the first government in the world to do so. It seems that microplastics in in other matrices, so the marine environment, air, sediment, other agencies around the world have looked into this, but none have actually gone as far as requiring monitoring or even mitigation efforts. So what kind of goals are being set? Is it levels of microplastics, uh, the number of them in drinking water? Is it the type, you know, this percent fibers, this percent, uh, you know, spherical type shapes? What are some of the nuances of the regulation that's proposed? So right now, the proposed regulation is really just around monitoring. We need to get a good idea of what is in our drinking water supplies and what's getting through the treatment plants in order to understand the human exposure. Once we understand what we're being exposed to, we can relate to we can relate those concentrations and the, the types and the sizes and the shapes to what we see in the toxicity studies that are conducted rodents. And instead of thinking about microplastics as, as sort of these discrete categories of different shapes, sizes, and, and and polymers, I like to think of them more as a continuous distribution. 
And in that way, we, we consider what's really going on physiologically with these particles and what makes us concerned about their impacts. And when it comes to human health, we have pretty good evidence that the surface area of the particles is really what's most concerning, as that is a good predictor for whether or not it's causing inflammation or oxidative stress. Well, what about the size? I had heard with air pollution, for instance, I guess um, there's a sweet spot or the opposite of a sweet spot around, uh, I believe, one micron where it's big enough to cause problems and get trapped in the lungs, but uh, you know, small enough to get in there in the first place. So with, with drinking water, has anyone attempted to quantify, like you said, in this distribution, you know, not just surface area limits, but size limits or morphology limits? Or again, is a fiber uh, worse for human health than a, you know, a spheroid particle? You, you hit it perfectly on the nose. The, the size is, is one of the factors that limits the bioaccessibility of the particles. So there's really two things that we have to be worried about. The toxicologically relevant metric, which is in this case surface area, which predicts inflammation and cytotoxicity, but then also what's bioaccessible. So a particle that cannot pass through tissue because it's too large, we don't consider that to be bioaccessible. And therefore, we're not really concerned about it for human health. So for inhalation, toxicologists have long been concerned about PM10 and PM2.5, uh, which refer to the micron size of these particles. And for microplastics, there's no difference. These behave like many other particles that we inhale. They exhibit toxicity that's very similar to these other non-plastic particles. And in that case, we, we have to really only focus on the particles that are below 10 microns. When it comes to ingesting particles, say through drinking water or through our food, similar particle size limits apply. Uh, approximately 10 microns and smaller is where we start to pay mind as these can increase the, the likelihood of getting lodged in our tissues and being distributed through the body. And it's really probabilistic exposure. So, you know, the, 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 the smaller you get, the more likely they'll translocate. It's not a guarantee. Uh, and all the way down to the small nano size range, uh, we see an increase in the uptake and distribution of these particles throughout our bodies. Um, because they're in an aqueous solution, um, what micron sizes do you see? Uh, you know, is it just like, again, like air pollution or is it different? Are there certain sizes that precipitate out or morphologies that do? You know, what are the size limits that you've seen already from monitoring where these particles are entrained in the water column and, you know, more likely to get into people's mouths drinking? So unfortunately, we, we don't have any harmonized or standardized monitoring data for microplastics just yet, because we've only just passed this regulation that requires water systems in California to conduct monitoring uh, in September of this year. So we won't actually have a data set for that until late next year. But what we do have are a decent handful of, or a couple handfuls at this point, of, of, of studies that have looked for microplastics in drinking water around the world. And what they find is that when you look smaller and smaller, you consistently find exponentially more particles in abundance. And we see this trend across matrices and across geographic areas. And really the thing that is most concerning is that most drinking water treatment plants are unable to remove microplastics smaller 
than the pore size of the filter. So if the pore size of the filter, for instance, is something as small as reverse osmosis, that's down into the small nanometer range. And it's likely removing virtually all microplastics, including the nano size plastics. But many water treatment plants don't go nearly as far as using something uh, like reverse osmosis. Most drinking water treatment plants that have surface water, they use something much more crude, such as sand filtration or just flocculation and sedimentation. In those cases, they're going to remove microplastics down to about 10 and sometimes down to one micron. And the nano-sized plastics are going to mostly make it through the treatment process onto the consumer. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700-plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000-plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. So what, what can you say about the monitoring data so far? Um, what are we seeing? Like, you know, how many microplastics, what sizes in the continuum, you know, after water treatment, let's say at the, I don't know if you're testing at the outlet of people's faucets or, you know, again, tell me about the, if you can, about the testing you're doing and what's showing up so far. So uh, like I mentioned, we don't have any data for California just yet. Um, we've, what we've done so far is develop a standardized method, actually the first ever analytical method that's fully standardized and accredited by a, a, a governmental body. And we are just getting laboratories online to be ready to, to process samples starting next year. But what we do know, I get uh, from the literature is very high variability for microplastics in drinking water. It really depends on where the source of water is, what kind of water it is, groundwater versus surface water, as well as the treatment plant. So, when it comes to groundwater, we don't really find microplastics at all. Uh, if we do find them, they're in extremely low abundance. Um, this is due to the, the, the ground acting as a great filter for these particles, just like any other particle. Surface water, on the other hand, it seems that everywhere we've looked, we've always found microplastics, even in pristine alpine sources. And here we're seeing ranges between the tens of particles to the millions of microplastic particles per liter. So again, extremely high variability likely do, uh, and it can be mostly explained by how close is that water source to an urban center? Yeah, I know you're not a, a you know a healthcare person, but could a generalized recommendation be made that anyone that's going to be drinking city water anywhere, it might be a good idea to have a filter on the outlet, you know, at least some kind of filter so that they can reduce the microplastic load? Unfortunately, at this point, we don't have any reliable data on home filtration devices for removing microplastics. To my knowledge, there's only one study that's ever looked at home treatment processes or home treatment devices, and it's uh, a, a non-peer-reviewed master's thesis. It did find that 
some household units that use ion exchange or granular activated carbon remove a decent amount of the microplastics. But again, um, I can't recommend anything at this point because we just don't have much evidence. That said, you, uh, it, it's likely that you know your home filter is removing some amount of microplastics as well as other things. It enhances the taste for a lot of people, so it makes people more likely to to, to drink the tap water over bottled water. So I would, you know, if, if that's something aesthetically that people are into, I would say continue to do that. It's, it's not going to hurt. And when it comes to drinking tap water or choosing whether or not you should drink tap water versus other sources, say, for instance, bottled water or, or going to a store and filling up like, you know, mini gallon containers, I would stick with tap water unless you know there's something else in your tap water that is not safe. And the reason for that is because bottled water on average contains three times higher concentrations of microplastics than tap water. And that's due to the bottle itself shedding microplastics. Hey, it's terrible. Uh, what, what does the testing look like? Like if I had brought you a water sample, I'd say, hey, you know, can you test it? How would you do it? Like what do the tests look like? So first we take the, the particles out of the sample. You can do this using filtration, and then you want to make sure that you're getting all of the interferences out of the sample. There's a lot of other organic matter that can clog the system or prevent you from seeing the part, the plastic particles. And so we, we can remove those with, with fairly simple methods using a base. And then once you have the, the microplastic particles on uh, extracted and on a, a filter, you can put that filter under a microscope. And typically these microscopes are outfitted with um, a, an imaging software that is often automated that can identify different particles and tell the shape, the size. And some of them are also automated in a way to tell you what the polymer is. And for this, we, we typically depend on one of two types of light-based spectroscopy either using Raman or Fourier Transform Infrared, also known as FTIR. And these, have, these technologies have been around for decades. They're, they're used for many different applications. But to my knowledge, their application for microplastics is the first time that they'll ever be required for use by a government agency, at least for, for drinking water analyses. Uh, and so these spectroscopic tests, they'll tell you the polymer type, and then you get a, a massive data set for each sample with each particle's shape, size, and polymer type. And all of that information goes into our state database, uh, which is then open to the public. Uh, I was just about to ask you, where can um, listeners go to see pictures of microplastics, what they look like after they've been filtered out of a water source? So what, what recommendations do you have for that? Uh, for looking at the actual pictures, um, I mean, a quick Google search will, will get you a lot of really great results. There's there's a number of, of fantastic images that come out of Dr. Sebastian Primke's lab in Germany, P-R-I-M-P-K-E, uh, one of the lead researchers that's the, really developing these spectroscopic techniques for microplastics analysis. So when you've looked at um, you know at these images or you've done sampling maybe yourself, what what do you see when you look? And I know it depends on the sample, and et cetera. But in general, like what jumps out at you when you look at these uh, these filtrate results? 
one of the things that we've we've noticed is that the there, there's a dominance of fibers. Uh, that's really the most likely type of microplastic uh, uh, morphology that you're going to find, and it's most of these fibers are likely coming from our clothing, which as well as our textiles in our homes, so our carpets and our rugs. If you think about all of the items in your house, you look take a look around the the chair you're sitting on, the the the, the carpets, the the rugs, your your clothes. There's so many fibers, and they're constantly shedding every time we walk in them and use them. And those are contaminating the air within our homes, as well as whenever we wash uh, textile, many millions of microfibers may be potentially going into a wastewater treatment plant. Often, those treatment plants are producing what's called biosolids, and the biosolids is where most of the microfibers go. Those can be land applied for agriculture, and agriculture is now a source of these microplastic fibers into the air. You mentioned before how these particles can travel through the air, and this seems to be one of the dominant mechanisms that we're finding microplastics and particularly microfibers in our drinking water sources, uh, which is why we're finding so many in our finished drinking water. Yeah, you mentioned that, um, again, you'll see a lot of fibers and you'll see plenty of material in, in pretty much any source. So you see mostly fibers. I don't know what's noticeable about the fibers. Like, can you tell where they've come from? particular source? Are they all made of the same polymer? Uh, we're typically seeing polyester. That is, that polyester makes up about 80% of the synthetic fibers that we wear. But we find in addition to plastic fibers, we still find a lot of organic fibers, cotton and, and wool. These fibers, contrary to popular belief, are also relatively persistent in the environment. Now, not to the the same extent as plastic fibers, which can last for theoretically hundreds to tens of thousands of years. But we use so much cotton and wool that we're also finding these contaminating our our water supplies as well as uh, the rest of our ecosystems. Yeah, when you said you can tell what polymers in some and in, in some systems they're able to analyze the polymers, are we just seeing backbone of let's say plastic that came from a bottle or you know a fiber that came from clothing? Yeah, because they have colorants, they have fire retardants, they have et cetera, you know, a lot of additives from what I've heard to many plastic products. So do we see them or do we just see, again, the backbone polymer structure? So sometimes we can actually see the, the colorants and the dyes if they are in very high abundance. But oftentimes we are really only looking for the polymer type with these instruments. And those, it's interesting that you mentioned those, those added chemicals, which by the way, are really ubiquitous. It's You can almost never find plastic without some type of added chemical, many of which are harmful to our health. But those chemicals often give us a indicator of where the product potentially came from. And I'm currently collaborating with uh, Dr. Roxana Suring from Toronto Metropolitan University in Canada to develop a technique that would allow us to determine where the plastics were made. This is a utilizing forensics technology with machine learning, as well as a large suite of plastics to, to train our database, um, to be able to understand um, you know, accountability, but you know, who's producing these plastics, but also uh, as a way of determining the sources and trying to control them. 
Well, what are some examples where you've been able to tell the source, you know, how was it, how, it, how did someone figure it out? So we, we have fairly, uh, up, up until this point, we have fairly crude ways of determining the source. This forensics tool is, is still in early stages and it's never been applied. We have an existing law in California that deals with pre-production pellets of plastics, which are also called nurdles. And this pre-production pellet law, uh, which is actually one of the first of its kind, regulates the discharge of these pellets from plastic manufacturing facilities. And there have been some instances where we have determined that the nurdles that we're finding in the water are coming from a particular plant. And it's fairly simple in these cases to figure out who it is because the you, you can basically follow the trail of particles upstream. And oftentimes we're finding these very, very close to the, the plants. And we're, we're usually looking for them um, close to the discharge or areas of these plants. You mean you're following like a concentration gradient and it leads you right back to the plant? Effectively, yes. And most of these, these cases have happened before we had sophisticated analytical techniques. So we weren't really using the same types of techniques that we were capable of using now. It was more of looking at particles under a microscope. And, and these nurdles are big. You can see them with the naked eye. Um, but, but, you know, often you, you find them just in very high abundance and, and you can basically backtrack them to the facility. And there have been some litigation cases in California, as well as a, what I understand to be a fairly large case that's going on in Texas right now. What do you mean? What are the cases about? I don't know if you could summarize quickly. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not super involved with them, but, um, there is a number of plastic production facilities in the, the Gulf of Mexico in Louisiana uh, and Texas that have been recently determined to be in violation of federal laws for discharging large amounts of plastic pellets uh, into the waterways there. And there's been a, a couple of community groups that um, went and monitored and, and, and have, are currently litigating against these companies. Oh, I see. It's like, oh, you, know, you appear to have polluted this, this stream. No, we didn't. Yes, you did. That kind of thing. Exactly. Okay. Gotcha. Makes sense. So um, are you, what, what are you able to say about this monitoring protocol that the, the state of California has come up with? Like, what are some of the, you know, the, the key parameters and the KPIs about it? Or what, you know, what's important for the public to know that you're going to be monitoring? So currently, our analytical methods are, like I said, they're the first standardized methods. And they're really considered to be the, the first step towards a method that we eventually want to use. That is to say, these methods are imperfect. And their imperfection largely stems from their ability to look at the smallest particles. Again, 10 microns and smaller is where we get concerned for human health. That is right about the limit of what our analytical methods can reliably detect, which is very unfortunate for, for us uh, in the mission of protecting public health. That is to say, we can't, uh, all is not lost. We can still use these methods and they're still very useful. It's just that we won't be able to tell if the particles are making their way through the treatment processes or not. Most treatment processes, even the very crude ones like flocculation and sedimentation, are likely removing the majority of plastic particles down to about 10 microns. So we're developing a iterative monitoring plan where we'll first be looking at microplastics in the source waters 
So what goes into the treatment plan? Just to get an idea of where we're seeing the most contamination in the state and who might be having the most exposure. And then in about two or three years from now, hopefully we'll have more sophisticated methods that can look at those smaller particles. And we'll go back to those those treatment plants that we know have a lot of microplastics in their source waters, and then look at what's actually breaking through the treatment processes and getting to the consumer. So if you live in a major metropolitan area in California, say the San Francisco Bay Area or Los Angeles area or San Diego, expect to find monitoring results for microplastics on your annual consumer confidence report, which is mailed to you every year, um, starting in 20, late 2023, early 2024. Oh, you mean individual consumers are going to get a report, but they, like as part of the utility or you know, with their yes. water bill company or what? Yes. So as part of the, these monitoring requirement, anyone who's doing monitoring pursuant to our orders will be required to report those concentrations to the consumers directly through the mail and online. Oh, so it'll say like, oh, Mrs. Jones, uh, your home ranked in like the 50th percentile for microplastics among you know, this many thousand homes or like what, what data will it say? It will. Some facilities may give you a percentile like that or a ranking. But most of them are just going to tell you, here's the data. Um, you know, you have on average 156 microplastic particles per liter. If you want to learn more, here's a few resources you can check out. Um, and then we also include some, some plain English language for what this could mean for people's health. And right now, unfortunately, we don't have a great idea of what it means for, for human health. We do have pretty good indicators that microplastics affect male reproductive systems, at least in rodents. And so water systems will need to disclose that information with a pretty big disclaimer that we still are just trying to figure out if it's relevant for our, for our health with the, the current exposure levels. Well, what's, uh, what's the next step after this? You know, once you get the monitoring in place, then what's the intention? The number one goal with microplastics and drinking water is to figure out if it's something we need to prioritize. We have tens of thousands of chemicals that we are concerned about for drinking water, and many of them are unregulated. And we have limited resources as government agency and these water systems have limited economic and, and, and institutional resources. So we want to make sure that we are, are putting our attention to what is a critical threat for human health. And right now, microplastics is just a giant question mark. We don't have enough data on the toxicity, and we don't have nearly enough data on the exposure for anyone to say if this is something that is an imminent public threat or if it's something that virtually no one is risk from. So we are both supporting the monitoring and, and getting exposure data and looking into what's being published in the literature in terms of toxicity. Uh, one step further, we're, we're directing the types of hazard studies that need to be conducted to get a good idea about whether or not this is causing harm to humans. Is there any point in doing a pilot study and looking at what uh, comes as the effluent of people's homes, you know, gray and or black water that feeds the water treatment plants? Do you mean the like the, the wastewater that comes from homes? Right, yeah. We actually already are conducting a pilot study. Uh, we have a collaboration with uh, some water systems or wastewater treatment plants in the Los Angeles area that they're mostly focused at this point on getting the analytical methods fleshed out, uh, robust and, and useful for, for the state. 
Um, but once those methods are, are fully validated in about a year or so, then we'll be using them on a statewide basis to look for microplastics in our waste streams. And you mentioned earlier that it's not too terribly difficult to discern up to about 10 microns what's there, but why is it harder to go down, let's say, to one micron? What uh, technology does it require that would be more expensive or that you don't have, maybe? There's, there's two main things. One is the microscope. Most optical microscopes are simply not capable of looking at particles that small. They, they, look up, they look very grainy when you're looking at them, and it's really hard to tell what's going on. And the second is more important. This is a, a spectroscopic limitation of both Raman and FTIR. Um, we call this the diffraction limit. And effectively, how the spectroscopic methods work is by shooting a laser at the particle, and the laser comes back to a detector. And the, the, the wavelength of these lasers for Raman and FTIR is right around 10 microns. Raman is a little bit shorter than FTIR. But what that means is the light, the, the laser, may actually miss the particle because the particle is smaller than the wavelength of light. And so that's a real difficult issue to get around. There are some highly innovative technologies that can circumvent that, that physical issue using both FTIR and Raman, but they're, they're currently very expensive or, or you know, still being developed. And then there's a suite of other methods that can be used to look for nanoplastics, but they're just still in the research phases yet, and they're not near anywhere close to being used. They're not mature enough for regulatory monitoring. What, what would you have to use, I guess, an electron microscope in order to see the you know, one micron or smaller particles? Often, often scanning electron microscopes are used for, for nanoplastics. There's a, a number of, of other techniques, both optical and non-optical. One of the, the most uh, promising techniques is, is using existing gas chromatography mass spectrometry, which is the, one of the major tools that we already use for other organic contaminants. Most chemicals that we worry about in drinking water we use GCMS to monitor for them. And you can, you can modify this instrument to look for, for nano and microplastics if you are able to pyrolyze the polymer. So basically you're burning the polymer and then it goes into the instrument. Um, that is a technology that I'm really excited about that should be available within about a year or two for regulatory monitoring. Right, but then you lose the morphology and the number of particle data and all that stuff. Exactly, exactly. And that may or may not be an issue, uh, depending on what type of information you already have. So in the case of, 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 of drinking water, we have a couple of high resolution monitoring studies that have detailed the size distributions and the shape and the polymer. And these are what we're finding is that depending on the water source, they can be fairly consistent across geospatial boundaries. And so if we understand these distributions, we don't necessarily need to get all of those bits of data for every single sample. We can just use a shortcut method, like looking at the mass, or even looking at the particle count. And that'll get us a better understanding of, it'll give us enough information to use for, for risk assessment without going through the expensive steps of, of using these highly sophisticated methods. Well, what happens when you're able to do these analyses and you see that, I'm not saying you will, but 
let's say you do see a significant amount of uh, microplastics and that it does appear to, you know, seriously adversely affect people's health, then what? So if we have evidence for harm and, 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 and uh, risk like is likely for humans in California, we will proceed with the next step that we have in our toolkit for protecting public health, which would be to issue what we call a notification level or response level. And th these are effectively pseudo-regulatory tools that we can issue rapidly to protect public health. And what, what they mean is if, there, if these levels are exceeded in drinking water, drinking water treatment plant has to do one of three things. They either have to treat the the water to remove the microplastics below that level. They take or they could take the water source offline or they could inform the consumer that this chemical or, or microplastics is exceeding what the state says is a safe level. And typically water systems want to avoid that last option because the, the potential blowback from, from the community can be quite large, right? And so they typically try and do the first two options. Eventually, uh, we would proceed to an actual regulation, which is called a maximum contaminant level or MCL. And this would be a regulatory standard that, that says, you know, if, if this contaminant is above this level, there will be economic consequences for that water system. And so they're, they're really on the hook to treat or, or get the levels below that level. But developing an MCL can take many years, and it's a, a very lengthy and involved process. Hmm. Okay, makes sense. Well, very good, Scott. Um, again, where can people go to track the progress that, that you guys are making and the monitoring, et cetera? You know, where can they keep tabs on it? So we have a microplastics webpage on our, our agency website, uh, waterboards.ca.gov. And if you look for microplastics, you can find all of the information there for, for our efforts in drinking water all in one place. Okay, very good. Well, Scott, thanks so much for coming. And I know this is a new field with a lot to be discovered, but, uh, you know, I appreciate your knowledge and your time. It's been great talk talking with you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.